Thank you. Hey, good morning. This is two weeks in a row, which I know you're thinking, what a treat. Christmas came early. Christmas in July. You're not thinking that. <laughs> Let's be honest. Uh, it's good to be with you. This is uh, the final week of our Off the Grid series. It's, we've been in this series looking at some of the narratives of the wilderness throughout Scripture. This is week five. We've looked at a number of, of different stories and characters, David, Joseph, Moses, uh, Elijah, and today we, we finally get to the New Testament, to the story of Jesus in the wilderness. Uh, I've said a few times in this series that the wilderness plays this kind of pivotal, key, formative role in the lives of so many in Scripture and for us as well as we experience some sort of wilderness season of our faith or our life. And this is true of Jesus as we'll see in this text today from Matthew 4. Matthew says this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So he was led by the Spirit. It's not just random. And he's tempted, or the, there's a, a footnote there, if you, if you have a Bible there, it says it could refer to tested as well. Kind of the same word. Jesus is tested or tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. Notice, the devil quotes scripture. Oddly enough, he, he quotes it out of context, but he still quotes it. Uh, he says, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone, from Psalm 91. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kings, kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. There was a time in history where uh, a family was kind of known by their family business or vocation. Uh, people knew you for what you did, and the, the classic example is the, the blacksmiths, right, whose granddad and great-granddad and, and all down the line were all blacksmiths, and this family just became known as the Smiths, right? How many, do we have any Smiths in the room? None. Okay, no blacksmiths. Tough crowd. <laughs> this was the kind of the primary way you, you knew people. Your, your identity was so tied into your, your, your family vocation, but with the Industrial Revolution, more and more education and more travel opportunities, people began to kind of choose. There was more vocational opportunities. They could choose what they wanted to do for work. People, particularly people of, of privilege, could kind of dream about what they wanted their life to look like, what they wanted to do for work. You didn't have to just follow one or two career paths. Your identity didn't have to be tied to your family vocation. You could kind of redefine yourself in another city with a different job, a different career path. 
But this kind of identity formation, uh, it, it, it was still based on something external, the, the sort of job or career you had, and it became kind of like a status symbol. There's sort of like a hierarchy of what jobs were kind of noble or honorable in society and what jobs weren't. And with this came the advent of brands who appealed to the kind of status differentiation where a brand you know, started appealing to the elites or it was, it was based less on the functionality of, of what you wore or what you, you know, dressed in. It was based more on your status. Uh, what we wear, what we drive, they say something about us. This is why I looked this up this week. A pair of Nike Air Yeezy 2 SP Red October shoes sold for a whopping 11,400 US dollars. I thought these shoes would look better on the, on the big screen. They don't. Don't buy those shoes. Uh, not a good status symbol. But there's nothing special about these shoes. They, they do the same thing any old shoe would do, but they're connected to our status, which is then connected to our sense of vocation and what we do and how much money we make. And we still experience this today to some level. Um, for better or for worse, I would probably argue for worse, that what we do for work is so tied to our, our sense of self-worth or significance, our place in society, our sense of identity. It's one of the first questions we ask people, what do you do? But there's a reaction to this that we've had, and I think um, particularly uh, my generation, millennials, started kind of questioning whether that was helpful. Because what happens if you change jobs, or what happens if you change careers, or you move, or you are unable to work? What happens to your sense of self-worth and your identity, your significance? And so my generation, millennials, kind of coined this popular idea that we are more than just what we do. We're a human being, not a human doing, whatever that means for you. And then came the invention of the smartphone and the rise of social media, which created a whole new way of forming our own identity. Increasingly, our identity is tied to our social media presence, our profiles. It matters less what you do or don't do for work. You can have an epic cool presence online. You can kind of craft yourself online however you want. But this form of identity is now being critiqued both inside and outside the church because you know that social media profiles are not a good judgment of reality, right? Your, your Instagram profile is probably so cool, but your life is probably not that cool. Let's just be honest. My garden on Instagram, I know you how much you all love like seeing photos of my lettuce and my kale and my snap peas. It's pretty cool on Instagram. It's pretty average in real life, but I make it look so cool. The reality is social media is not a good reflection of reality. And so there's been this reaction, again, this kind of shift. People are increasingly saying, don't find your sense of self-worth, your identity, in how you present yourself, in how many likes you get, or how many shares you get, or all of that, because the weight of comparison is literally killing us, particularly as it relates to teenagers and young adults. And so the popular idea in our culture today is to stop looking for externals, to stop looking to the world around you to kind of affirm who you are. Don't base your identity on your job, or how many square feet your house is, or what you do for work, or how many kids you have, or anything like that. Instead, look inward. Create your own identity. Recent studies uh, show that 91% of Americans agree with the statement that the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. In other words, if you want to discover who you are, 
and what your purpose is, the place to look is inside your heart. No one else gets to define you. Identity is self-defined in our culture. You get to kind of personalize and craft and define it however you want. And there's something mesmerizing and attractive about this approach. It's like choose your own adventure. I can be whoever I want to be, however I want to be. There's something there that's kind of attractive. The options are endless. But I would argue it's leading us into sort of a large-scale identity crisis as people are increasingly struggling to find something to anchor their identity in, something to kind of root their sense of self and purpose and significance in. And we're seeing this even amongst the most kind of progressive thinkers and areas of society, people wrestling with this concept of self-defined identity. Just last year, a Caucasian British influencer underwent extensive plastic surgery to make himself look more Korean and came out on social media, of course, sharing that they no longer identify as British, but as Korean. This caused a massive uproar, as you can imagine, uh, particularly among Koreans who argue that you just can't simply choose to be Korean if you're not. You can't just do that because you feel like it. But this influencer made a statement that I thought was just so, um, so telling for the kind of moment we're in right now. This is what he said. He said, I'm not about negativity or sparking controversy. At the end of the day, I'm a human being living in my truth. It's an unfortunate reality for so many to have to hide who they truly are. Now, I know what you're thinking. What does any of this have to do with Jesus in the wilderness? That's a great question. We're getting there. See, I used to think this text of Jesus in the wilderness was kind of, was kind of Jesus' version of showing up Satan. Like, it's, we look at it and we see that Jesus is more powerful than Satan, or Jesus is something more than Satan. And there's, uh, speaking of social media, there's a fictional kind of meme that has gone around of Jesus arm-wrestling Satan. Have you seen this? Um, I love this. This is so epic. And it always comes with the caption like, you know, share this to all your friends and family if you believe that Jesus, you know, is powerful than Satan. Only 1% of people will actually have the courage to share this powerful image. Will you be the 1%? Don't share the image. Like, this is not reality. But beyond just this kind of epic showdown where Jesus is like, you know, defeating Satan in the wilderness here, though that is kind of happening, there's a theme of identity here in this narrative uh, that Matthew wants us to see on a couple of layers. There's a theme of identity. First, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is representing a new kind of Israel. Last week I spoke on uh, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, this kind of classic text. And Matthew wants us to see, he's kind of retelling that same narrative of, of the Israelites entering into the wilderness. He wants us to see the parallels. Just as the Israelites go into the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus goes into the wilderness here for 40 days. Just as the Israelites are called God's son in Exodus, Jesus comes as the Son of God. The Israelites were tested or tempted in the wilderness. Jesus is tested or tempted here. The Israelites were hungry. As we spoke of last week, Jesus here is hungry. The Israelites are fed by God, bread, manna in the wilderness. And you will notice the very first temptation Jesus has is to do the miracle God did way back when, to create bread out of nothing, to create bread out of stones. 
there's these parallels again and again and again. Three times Jesus quotes scripture here, and every time he quotes directly from that wilderness narrative in Deuteronomy. Matthew is telling us that Jesus is a kind of new Israel. But where the Israelites were stubborn and rebellious, Jesus isn't. Where the Israelites gave in to temptation and disobeyed God, Jesus doesn't. Where the Israelites questioned God's provision again and again and again, Jesus trusts in God. He doesn't take the shortcut. He resists temptation. Where Israel failed, Matthew wants us to see Jesus doesn't. There's kind of a retelling of the great Exodus narrative. But there's another layer of identity that I want you to see in this text. Because in two of the three temptations, the enemy begins with this phrase. He says, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, turn stones into bread. Do you see it? There's a kind of a testing of his identity here. It's like a passive-aggressive way to suggest he might not be the Son of God. It's like when you say, you know, if you're a really good friend, you would, you know, come mow my lawn this week or something. It's like you're kind of suggesting, like, you know, that's, that's, that's the deal. If you're actually the Son of God, prove it. And to understand the significance of this question and the way he phrases it, we have to just go back just a couple of verses. If you have your Bibles, just the, the chapter right before, the narrative just before Jesus is led into the wilderness is his baptism. If you remember at his baptism, Jesus goes into the water and he comes up and the text says that the heavens like opened up and the, the spirit of God descended on him like a dove. And from heaven, we get this voice that says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus has just heard these words. He's just had his identity confirmed from the father, from heaven, and right immediately after the devil comes and says, if you are the Son of God, if you really are the Son of God. See, sometimes we think of Satan's work as this kind of nefarious, like, overt operation to get us to, like, rob a bank or do something, like he's pulling the strings kind of behind the curtain. We might attribute something bad or unexpected to him, but I would argue the primary way he works is by spreading lies. One author says that lies are the means by which the devil does his work. By sowing seeds of doubt, by sowing lies into our hearts, which then inform how we live. We see this kind of, the same sort of questioning in the garden narrative, the very first temptation. Did God really say, don't eat the fruit? Does it sound familiar? If you are really the son of God, did God really say, he sows a seed of doubt. He tells a lie that takes root in our hearts. He makes us question whether or not we believe what God says is actually true. And just as he does this with Jesus' identity, he does it with ours. See, one of the reasons I think there's such a big kind of crisis of identity in our society today is because we don't know where to anchor our identity. Our society has largely kind of unhinged itself from the belief that there is a creator at all. And so if there's no creator, if there's no sense of bigger purpose or intention with my life and who I am, then identity is up for grabs. I can kind of define myself however I want. And it sounds appealing. It sounds appealing on some level. But it's just not reality. And the Bible tells a different story about our identity. 
Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, my identity doesn't begin when I begin to understand myself. There is something previous to what I think about myself, and it is what God thinks of me. See, the Bible tells a different story. The Bible tells the story of a God who created the heavens and the earth with purpose and meaning and intention. It tells the story of God creating mankind, not by accident, but in his very image and likeness. There is an identity given to us by God. And though some might feel like there's kind of a restrictive or limiting sense to that, there's very good news. Because the identity given to us by God is so much better than the identity we might come up with on our own. Whatever identity and self-proclaimed kind of identity I might come up with, will pale. It, it, it does not compare to the identity given to us by God. And the same words spoken over Jesus at his baptism become the same words spoken over us. You are my beloved child. With you I am well pleased. You are his beloved child. 1 John 3 says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. That is the reality. That is the truth. The primary identity we hold is, to, is being the beloved, being a child of God. It doesn't mean those other things don't matter. We all carry a number of different kind of identity uh, hats that we wear parent or sibling or brother, single, retired, uh, Caucasian, African-American, all of those are important. But for Jesus, it was knowing his identity from the Father that sustained him in the wilderness. And the temptation we face is to locate, to anchor our primary identity in something other than what God says about us, to find our identity apart from God. I feel the pull each and every day, scrolling through social media, chatting with people, to sort of pitch a tent in a particular camp, to identify with some political group or some political ideology, uh, to, to find my sense of self-worth and how good I am in my job or in how other people perceive me, how, how liked I am. I feel the temptation all the time to root and anchor my identity somewhere else, apart from God the temptation to be relevant or successful or well-liked. Where do you anchor your identity? Where do you find your sense of self-worth and purpose? Is it in your career or your success or your family, your sexuality, your politics, your views on COVID? Like there is no shortage of places to anchor your identity, to kind of build a sense of self today. And in the midst of all of these competing ideas and identities, we can lose sight of the fact that God has already given us an identity that is so much better. We are his beloved child. The invitation for us is to anchor our identity in what God says about us. Not what other people say about us. Not what the world says about us. Not what we say about us. And what God says about us. Notice that every time Jesus is tempted, he refers back to what God has said previously. He doesn't refer back to what people have said about him or what he thinks about himself. He refers back to what God has said about him. He refers to this story. He anchors himself in this story. We don't fight temptation by just kind of like sheer willpower and grit and determination. 
we fight temptation, we resist temptation by anchoring ourselves in the story, in what God says about us, by believing and receiving the very simple truth that we are His beloved. Do you know that you know that you know in the core of your being, you are the beloved of God? You're made in the image of God, that your life is not an accident. That while, yes, you make mistakes, you sin, we all do, but because of Jesus, you are his beloved. What great love the Father has lavished on him, that we, that on us, that we might be called children of God. That's what we are. Do you know what God says about you? Do you believe what God says about you? See, the wilderness will test and reveal where you anchor your identity, a crisis, a broken relationship, will test where you put your identity. The enemy would try to question or confuse and dismantle the identity given by God, to have you believe something other than what God has said about you, to sow seeds of doubt in your heart about whether God actually loves you, about whether God actually says those things over you, about whether God actually calls you his beloved, whether you actually have value and worth and significance, to anchor your identity somewhere else. But the thing about having an identity that comes from God, from heaven, is that it doesn't change based on how we feel. It doesn't change based on what we did last weekend or last year. It doesn't change based on our past. It's given to us by God. And the invitation for us is to anchor our identity in what God says about us.